Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Get the Lead Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And happily, this week, once again, we have Dr. Howie Horowitz with us. Doc Howie. Doc Howie. Doc Howie. Doc Good Howie. for what ails you. I have been given permission to use that, so uh, I, I will from now on. Listen, when I'm in a room with PhDs, I, I get a little nervous, okay? Post I, hole diggers. Post hole diggers. diggers. That's what's PhD. Yes. Piled okay. higher and deeper. Pile. <laughs> if you say so. But uh, no, we're really very, very uh, happy and grateful that uh, Doc Howe is able to join us and uh, also for all that you do, uh, Dr. Chuck Stead, because this is important. Now, more than ever before, what we're trying to do with these podcasts is just try to get people more engaged, more informed, so that they can make informed decisions, so that they can think critically, and maybe we can leave the place a little bit better than we found it. So, what are we going to talk about this week, Chuck? Well, this episode starts a series of a few episodes focused on toxic legacy. Thank you, Joe. In the late summer of 2005, Jeff Welch phoned me and asked that I join him down in the Ramapo Wellfield, where he was taking Bergen record photojournalist Thomas Franklin to photograph some paint sludge. Now, I had just returned from camping overnight with the Nature Place Day Camp, and I was not much in the mood for going back out again. But an opportunity to interact with a reporter concerning the sludge issue was not to be passed up. When I got to the Torn Valley, I found that Tom Franklin was interested in taking both still shots and video. The three of us went first to an area in the Tornbrook where a fairly large chunk of hardened paint sludge sat midstream. Tom snapped a few shots and some video of Jeff talking about the nature of the paint. We then went down to the Ramapo Wellfield in the village of Hilburn. Here some years earlier, there had been a half-hearted attempt at sludge removal, which resulted in one barrel of contaminated material, as well as a large mound some 60 feet across and over 12 feet high of excavated soil laced with fragments of sludge. This mound was only 20 feet from a United Water wellhead, wellhead number 97. Tom filmed Jeffrey talking about the need to remove the sludge waste from the active well field, while I explored the perimeter and found the distribution of paint sludge covered a much larger area than originally believed. From there, we went down to a low-lying floodplain along the state line, still in the village of Hilburn. Here we shot footage of some of the house foundations, for although the structures had been dismantled, the footings remained. These concrete blocks rose up more than four feet, as it was necessary in order to cope with the periodic flooding from the Ramapo River. It was getting hot and muggy when Tom asked me to speak on camera about the nature of this community. I hunkered down at the top step of what had been the front entrance to somebody's home, and I started talking. This place was called the Meadows. It was subject to overflow from the Ramapo River. But before the days of the New York State Thruway, the flooding was more manageable. The Thruway altered the river just north of the Meadows, straightening it out such that the water volume accelerated for about half a mile before it reached the banks of the Meadows. Residents there noticed an increase in the flooding cycle. This was amplified by the railroad embankment just south of the Meadows, built for the Ford Motor Company, which acted as a natural dam against the receding floodwaters. In the early years of Ford during the late 1950s, Dumping was just over the state line, down into the lower meadows, and this was commonplace. Eventually, the local dumping moved out north to the Torn Valley and then west into Ringwood, New Jersey. 
In the early 1990s, when I was producing some local cable television, we ran a segment shot in the meadows discussing the paint sludge with children. This brought us the attention of the New York State Department of Conservation, the DEC, which led to the removal of over 155-gallon drums of paint sludge. But this was only the beginning of the work to be done at the site. After the interview, we walked over to an area along the state line where large chunks of paint sludge remained. Tom Franklin was shocked that the DEC oversaw the removal of barrels of sludge but did nothing about the rest of the paint. Jeffrey explained that removing barrels is one thing, but unearthing paint in among trees was much costlier. It would need industry dollars to finance that sort of extraction. Once the barrels were removed, DEC had an aeration well put in to help off-gas the groundwater. After a few years, this was taken down despite the clear visibility of the remaining sludge. As we walked back to our car, Tom Franklin told me that the Bergen Record had been working on a series of stories that would run in early October. This series would also have a computer link for broadband video, photos with narration, documents, and discussion boards. I was amazed. For while our local media occasionally ran a sludge story, for the most part, they remained mute. The Bergen Record was about to release a five-part series entitled Toxic Legacy. Since Ford closed its Malwa plant in 1980, this would be the first in-depth coverage of what Ford had left behind. The series would come to play such a significant role in bringing Ford, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, the DEP, back to Ringwood, that it bears review and some background as to what this series was all about. Jan Barry, upon first impression, is a fairly unassuming, soft-spoken sort of man, a Vietnam veteran whose journalistic career included groundbreaking work investigating the controversial herbicide Agent Orange. Jan is a penetrating storyteller. It was Jan who, back in 1995, while working for the Bergen Record, heard of some Ramapo natives requesting the borough of Ringwood visit a site where paint had been found. He went to that address, which was near to the Cannon Mine, a 19th century iron mine, and was surprised to find that representatives from the Ford Motor Company, Arcadis Environmental Agency, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, the EPA, as well as Ringwood municipal leaders were all gathered at the site. He knew that this area of Ringwood was a delisted Superfund site and that the residents continued to claim the pollution had not been removed. Now on his first visit to the old mining area, home of a branch of the Ramapos belonging to the Turtle Clan, he observed what appeared to be a stone wall but was actually a wall of paint sludge chunks. The sludge ran alongside a resident's garden area. The regulators, this would be the DEP and EPA, said that this area must have been overlooked and would be attended to. When Jan returned to the newspaper's office, his superiors showed little interest in the paint story, but they were very excited that he had found access to this isolated Ramapo Indian community. They told him to go back and do a profile on them. So I went back, Jan recalled, and I talked to a person from their community association. He gave me a little walking tour and pointed out some other hazards, such as an open mine shaft into which a boy had disappeared and was never found some homes that were slipping into sinkholes, power lines that crossed over houses, a mountain spring that bubbled up orange and smelled like industrial solvent, 
I mean, everything was hazardous. My tour guide told me that the Orange Spring used to be where the community could collect fresh water. But when the dumpers came, well, they were told there was nothing to worry about. Since then, the water has been fouled. Jan wrote this story, and the paper ran some photos of the area. But again, the government agencies claimed there was nothing to worry about. Then in 1997, Jeff Tittle, a local environmental advocate, discovered sludge welling out of a bank and going into a stream called Park Brook, which flows from a pond at Ringwood Manor, a county park. Tittle called this into the record, and Jan, along with a photographer, was assigned to check it out. What they found was an oily substance oozing out of the embankment at a proposed hiking trail and in sight of some Ramapo homes. They took photos, and the next day Jan spoke with the New Jersey Water District and suggested that they look into this. Well, they did, shortly after that, and he received a call from the Water District and was told they took some samples at the site and they had them analyzed and they found elevated levels of benzene and arsenic. Jan then called the Ringwood Borough Hall and he talked to the municipal engineer at the hall but was told that Ringwood was not concerned. Still, it went up the ladder to the EPA who a few days later called Jan and told him there was no problem in Ringwood. In January of 2004, Barry took a reporter from a local weekly paper back to Ringwood in an effort to create more coverage of the story and bring some attention to the crisis. He was frustrated with the slowness and lackadaisical response of the media in general. Together, they found barrels popping up through leaf litter at an area that was supposedly remediated. The story showed up in the weekly, and the record was given the credit for the investigation. Barry had nudged the record a little further back into the story. Then in spring of 2004, the Ramapo community staged a press conference where they invited state and federal regulators along with the press to go on a walkabout with them. This was when Jan met Vivian Milligan and Wayne Mann, two community organizers with the Ramapos of Ringwood. Regulators representing the state and federal government along with Ringwood Borough representatives, media, and community members, were led along an old mining road to inspect slabs of lava-like sludge, long slabs revealing a hardened flow of lead paint. This was a trail frequented by children of the community. Barry recalled that some of the EPA guys, did, they didn't take this seriously. We were just walking over top of it as if it was all benign. When they reached the last house on a cul-de-sac near to the Cannon Mine, Barry recognized the place as where he had been years before to examine paint sludge in a man's backyard. Remember, that was the paint sludge wall. And now it was discovered in his front yard. And Barry lost his usual sense of composure. I was fed up. I turned to the regulator and I said, you are going to clean this up. It was heavy through the grass and in around the children's play area. Their attitude was blasé. They could care less. That was when the record allowed him more time for the Ringwood story and assigned his colleague, Barbara Williams, to work with him as a sort of tag team. Between them, they could cover the community meetings. Eventually, he was given more support as the managing editor saw a potential for the story netting the paper a Pulitzer Prize. They hired consultants for the standalone website, even though many of the reporters were highly skeptical that the story would run given the fact that they were up against Ford as well as the federal government. 
When research turned up mob connections with the carting, they found Paint Sludge had traveled north to Platakill, New York, and south to Cheesequake State Park in New Jersey. During this time, the summer of 2005, DEP Commissioner Brad Campbell told Barry that a formal request of criminal investigation of both Ford and the EPA had been made to the U.S. attorney, who at that time was Chris Christie. This caused concern with the record's editors, who worried as to the appropriateness of releasing the story to the public. Barry wrote a carefully worded article that ran in the early summer, but he felt the concerns were their concerns. The paper's concerns were nonsense. Frustrated with the constant delays, he was ready to resign. Only later did he learn that the editorial staff was in deep conflict about the story. He noted that one of the editors was what he called the delayer, and he grew suspicious of the editor's constant defense of industry. Depressed about the delays, he continued to work the story along with six other reporters. Still, he had the distinct impression that the story was going to be dumped. During this time, his strongest supporter, a managing editor, was let go, along with their chief investigative reporter. But despite all this, Barry was never pressured himself to leave. Then on Sunday, October 2nd, the first of a five-part series appeared on the front page of the record with the headline, Ford, the Feds, the Mob, Making of a Wasteland. And we'll hear more about that in our next couple of episodes. Gee whiz, every once in a while the truth breaks on through. How do you like that? Despite the best efforts of many people who would prefer that it did not. Let me just ask you one quick question before we start the real discussion. And that is uh, Mr. Mann that you mentioned in this story. Is that the, is that the uh, gentleman who is featured in the HBO documentary yeah. Man vs. Ford? That's Wayne Mann. Yeah, we'll be talking about that documentary too eventually. But that's Wayne Mann. He's related to Chief Mann of the Turtle Clan. You said there was a woman because I uh, Vivian Milligan, and she's the she's the one who walked with him. Yes, she's okay. the uh, she's a clan mother, and I she figured. was a wonderful organizer. She's gone now, but she was a wonderful organizer with the uh, Turtle Clan. So now push is coming to shove, I guess, and you've got the EPA is involved, but it seems like everybody's trying to pass over it. Yeah, everybody's trying to. It's amazing how what I hear is it's just the amount of work the, the the amount of arm twisting the gentleman from the record had to do to get anybody to really finally kick in and i mean think of the years that this yeah, was going I didn't on even just hear, for him alone and you right. don't hear the word criminal until what 2004 mm. um and uh, before that everybody's just sitting yeah H- howard would i i think y- you know jan well too oh, yeah. Jan is tenacious, and he just stays on it. That's how he revealed all of that material that that's no one great. else had looked for for Agent Orange back in the seventies. Right. That's yeah. I, I would say that's important to understand that um, yeah. Jan is a veteran, literally, but also a veteran of of the herbicide wars. Yeah, he he yeah. he fought against you know the, the exposures to Agent Orange and and um, and therefore is used to fighting agencies 
and know and knows the limitations of those agencies. Plus, he has a, you know, the academic skills as well. Yeah, yeah. Like Chuck, Jan has been a very long time adjunct faculty member at Ramapo. Um, our best environmental faculty members tend to be the adjunct faculties, largely because they're the only ones we have left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they are the only ones. <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah. really? That's literally true, yeah. pretty much. But anyway, um, Jan's persistence does, you know, it's, it's admirable, but it's also because it's something that's it struck him at his core. Yeah. It's had a history of bat- battling these things, and he, he understands um, the magnitude of the challenge. Certainly, it. if he was looking towards Agent Orange and Vietnam era, yeah. and what it had done to so many soldiers who lived through the war and then died. Including after. him himself. Yeah. He, he, yeah. He, he's, he's adversely been affected. By sure. Imagine his another, another person who's leaving now, by the way, do you know Ev Cox? He, he's, he's moving to Germany. Mm. But, um, He's also a person from around here who's been active in a variety of active things, but also was suffered from exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam yep. you know, decades and decades wow. ago. Wow, close to the mic. So, uh, so these are people that are living with the consequences. Yeah, of, and, and, of and certainly that, that, that radicalizes them for sure. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. It's getting kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah, I think when you mm-hmm. see it firsthand, like this gentleman did, in Vietnam, and you see the after effects firsthand. That can really, that can, get your, you know, bring your fervor up, and yeah. you're gonna. Well, Jan was in Nam in '62. He was under the 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 auspices of consultant in Vietnam in '62, and he was uh, he was in. Uh, in charge of distribution, uh, di- distributing uh, various materials to the troops. And in the building that he was in, he recognized the various chemicals as being high-end industrial herbicides. And he wondered in 62, as a young guy, why do we have these? So he did this amazing thing. He made notes. He made notes. And literally... More than 10 years later, as the stories are pouring out about exposures and various reactions, but nobody was yet bringing up Agent Orange. They were talking mostly or focusing mostly on, on uh, napalm. But as these other things and these other cancers were showing up, Jan starts doing the research, reclaiming his notes, and figuring out what this was all about. He, he was really the lead guy on this, in, in having been there. Uh, there are many books about investigating Agent Orange. Jan isn't even mentioned. He's the one who pointed so many of the other reporters, like the Washington Post and New York Times, in the correct direction. And and being who Jan is, he doesn't care as long as the story is out there. You know, it's it's right. okay. As long That's as the truth is told. Yes. Now, yes. You know, yeah. one thing about Asian Orange story too is that you have to realize that um, even then, the powers, the, the establishment, manages to minimize the adverse impact of the information hmm. by governing it and and this in this instance the focus all became dioxin mm-hmm. one yeah. of the one of the one of the asian orange um mixes 245t had tetradioxin and so that became the focus not that the other stuff wasn't also hazardous yeah it's a chemical cocktail but but, but the focus ended say, up being, yeah. so that became yeah and, and often to, 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 the, to this day Many times people say it's the dioxin that's the problem, when in right. fact, um, 
2,4-D, which, by the way, remains on the market um, because it, it doesn't have tetra. It has other dioxins, but it doesn't have the, the, uh, the particular dioxin that was considered to be the hazard was in 245T and not 24D, and that made the difference for the regulatory agencies. It seems incredible. It almost seems like they're looking for what is the least amount we can get away with here. Yeah. Uh, instead of doing what their charter you know, states that they should be doing, protecting the environment, protecting us, they seem to be in a managerial capacity trying to mitigate the danger, you know. But they also remember they have got to to, to, to get a, a chemical off the market. They've got to do a risk-benefit analysis, which is structured in a way that's difficult to get through and involves quantifying things that are not readily quantified but must be quantified in order, in order to get through the process. And so it makes it very, very hard to do it without some powerful driver. In the, case, in the case, once dioxin was identified as the particular focus, then that became easier to identify that as um, having risk greater than benefits. Yeah, the yeah. problem. Be- and benefits is particularly the biggest issue because benefits, uh, risks have always, that, that's the field of doctors and scientists. And, mm-hmm. and there's usually, it's easy to see there's a lot of risk. Benefit, which is equal to, the, equal to risk in terms of the, the decision-making, is dominated by the industries. It's dominated by right. the lumber companies, the chemical companies. And it's, and it's very hard to get critics on the benefit side. That's why I played right. my role for the EPA. We measured thousands of trees in Oregon with the ODADs, our tree planting co-op that I was part of, which is having its 50th reunion this later this summer. <laughs> but anyway, the um, we measured thousands and thousands of trees. We formed a research team, Groundwork, and Groundwork measured trees, thousands of them, and found that the benefit of the spraying was a tiny fraction of what was being claimed. The claim was you know, at least 10 times greater than the actual demonstrable benefit. Hmm. And so the EPA, when they learned that, quickly hired me. said, we need you, because they have to weigh risk and benefit. And anybody that can argue that the benefit was less, they need it, because they did want to win their case. Hmm. So there were good people Oh, yeah, there. yeah. They, they, course, but it's... Yeah, but, and, but they also understand that um, they have to have enough, enough evidence to win their case in the eyes of judges who are, they don't appoint. They're they're administrative law judges that make the decisions. That, in a sense, is a random shot at who you get. Um, And they're fighting against these massive industries like Ford. Yeah, Ford, Dow, in our case was Dow. They're giant companies that, that have endless resources. Again, they can be beaten back, but but you have to really um, have a compelling benefit side as well as the risk side because people can otherwise claim, oh, those plasticizers are so valuable, we can't, you know, so a few people get hurt, you know, we, we, the benefits are greater than the risk. And that's something people are willing to believe it also if, it is, very, if, they're not, if they're not disproved of it. It seems very time-consuming no matter what. Like, it's going to take a long time to... The hearings take two or three years. Yeah. A, a typical hearing does take two or three years. I, I was I worked for the EPA for a little over two years. I always on, wondered, on like, why does it take so long? If you've got the facts and you're you're going to make a presentation, I mean, everything, you know, all all litigation, you know, the litigation we hear about today, all this ridiculous, horrible stuff going on in government, 
And then they say, you know, so we'll probably have a hearing uh, next year in March, and uh, that will start things. And, you know, we'll be talking about this for the next four years. Like, remember the old statement, you know, justice delayed is justice denied, you know? Why why can't we get this the, done the faster? Prob- the problem here is that most of what happens happens before you even get to the hearing. That long period of time is mostly the negotiation going on between both sides well in advance of anything the public is going to get a shot at understanding. The They're documentation. Yes, all that. Do- everything has to be laid down, whether or not it's credible, whether it's going to be allowed in a court of law, whether it can be exempted, the challenges to it, which can happen again and again and repealed again. So all of that takes a very long time. And again, we know what that means. It's just like what you said. Justice delayed is often justice that never actually transpires. It just takes such a long time. And, you know, the horrible thing about about the Turtle Clan is it's not cleaned up there. You know, we, in, in our story, you're going to hear Still. that we got it cleaned up in Torn Valley. So we probably extrapolated about a third of all the paint sludge that was dumped in the watershed. But the two-thirds are still there, and those people are living on top of it. Boy, oh, boy. And and, and, and that's justice delayed again. And and the problem there is that because Ringwood, unlike Hilburn, Ringwood was a partner to the the dumping. Yeah. So so they know they have some liability, and therefore they have obstructed every step of the way. Yeah. Their own local municipal government working against their own people. We need another... Intrepid reporter like like Jan uh, Jan to really well the this. the paper produced that wonderful site and it was great and that site was taken down because the paper got bought out by Gannett and I used to use that site as an educational tool I used it in my classes in my sustainability classes and the site was taken down apparently you can find it now again Jeff Welch told me you can find it again but it's no longer the videos which were great the interviews of people like vivian milligan you know where and even jan was in one of the interviews the interviews were really fun to see i think they've been pulled out but the text to the site has been somebody copied it apparently and so it's available somehow That's well, I, I read it at the time and i, I actually had a as, as as teachers do i cut it out and and use it in class for yep. some years afterwards yeah I never saw any of the videos or anything. I just saw what was in the paper. The videos were fun. They were fun. And some of the people in the videos, Wayne Mann does a great interview in the video. And, you know, and of course, Tom Franklin went out with the camera. So he went to a lot of the sites and you could see it. You could see visually what we were talking about. Well, yeah, I was just saying a video is so much better because yeah. many people will go to a site like that and they may be somewhat lazy like me and would rather listen to someone tell me what's going on. I'll bet you Tom Franklin still has <laughs> copies of those videos. And, and the nuance of their think. voices. Yes. The yeah. Yeah. And their urgency in their voice. Maybe it's on YouTube somewhere. It could be. I, I don't know. Yeah. Jeff found it, though. Jeff did find it. and yeah. So that means it is findable. So Are we on YouTube? I don't know. Hey. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Can we assume that this, that the remediation is still in progress or is it really stopped? That where we're going, and you're going to hear about this in upcoming episodes, is the EPA had agreed that the paint should remo- be removed from the Ringwood site. Um, and then Ford came back in after saying, yes, they would go along with that agreement. 
and came up with an offer. And this was merely the what's called the O'Connor Waste Field. This was separate from the paint dumped down in the mine shafts. That's a whole other issue. So there's like two big issues there. But then Ford came back with this other opportunity to talk about, and I talk about this in the epilogue of the stories, and that is that they offered the municipality of the borough of Ringwood a state-of-the-art recycling center, which would be a revenue draw, and they would build it on top of a cap if they were allowed to cap the O'Connor waste field. This would become the first toxic dump waste field that has a cap on it on which an industry is built. So it's purely an experiment with a watershed. And the EPA said, well, if you want that, and the Ringwood people, the, the borough, the politicos in Ringwood, accept that, we'll go for it too. Which to me, I said before the EPA was hollowed out, well, now it doesn't even exist because they're going completely against the premise of what they were about because they do know the dangers. It isn't like, it isn't like they are unaware of these dangers. So... If that should happen, I mean, we'll be protesting. We'll, we'll get in the way of the bulldozers. Because if that should happen, they will be creating, think about this, 200 trucks of refuge a day plus the machines inside the Bay areas where the recycling is going on, on top of a cap. It's like creating a malted milkshake machine in the earth. So all that will do is expedite the flow, the ground flow of water underneath it interacting with the paint sludge this is this is horrible and the epa signed off on it so i i don't have a lot of good to say about the folks at epa anymore not that i ever had a whole lot of good but it went down right pretty far yeah yeah what's it is ironic one of the one of the epa field judith inc mike judith inc is getting some big award yeah yeah i know they like to award one another over there we're we're gonna wrap in a few minutes on this on this episode, but I wanted to uh, since I, I I you've been really gracious with your time, Doc Howie. Thank you really it's have been fun, old it's Doc fun. Howie. I like that. That's yeah, good. That and we we really do appreciate it, and it has been fun as well as really informative. What possessed you though to get into this this field of endeavor? You you obviously made a choice somewhere along the line that this is where you were gonna focus your efforts. Well, when I was a boy, I grew up in New York City, and, and I was always drawn to nature. I remember as an as a, as a eight-year-old boy going to the, the alleyway where, between houses where there was a, 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 weed, a little weed field and running to the weed field. That, that was escape. I collected butterflies. I learned, wow. I learned to... Uh, I was ruthless. I killed a thousand butterflies. You know, <laughs> around age thirteen, I began to feel a bit guilty about that, and I, I shifted from from doing that. But but I was always interested in nature, and yeah. um, always loved the chance to get to nature. And so when we went to college in Rochester in the sixties, um, we got out into the parks and the, the areas around there, Letchworth, some beautiful places around there, as much as we could. And when I ended up meeting and um, connecting up with my partner Ann, um, we decided we'd go out to Oregon. We didn't know anybody, but we had an idea in our heads that Oregon was a, had forests and ocean and mountains and would be beautiful. And so we did. We got married, and ten days later, we took off in, in a car to, to out to Oregon. And and it turned out we ended up realizing what we had set out to do, which is finding a super beautiful place to live. 
It was a shack, but it was a shack in a really beautiful place. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, lived there for some years, and ended up joining a, a tree planting co-op. That plant when we planted trees for ten years. They're having the reunion this year, which we're going to. Good. Oh, dads. But as tree planters, it was great. We 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 changed the whole industry because um first it got big with three hundred members, but besides that um it brought large numbers of women into the workforce. We stood up against herbicides and, and, and a whole bunch of things like that that happened. And um, at, the, at the end of it, because of the, her, the herbicide battles, in my case, I was also going to graduate school in, at the University of Oregon at studying geography, did the coursework, and went full-time into woods work, and worked full-time for about seven years planting trees and doing other woods work under contract with the Forest Service, firefighting, thinning, all, all the different kinds of woods work that was up for bid. And then um, the, the EPA stuff, we, we measured the herbis- we measured the trees, and the EPA called, called me in to help them with their the benefits side of their case. And um, so I ended up writing testimony. It was 300 pages long, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that hard to turn it into a dissertation. The... Um, this university faculty were supportive. They, they, even though they could have said no, because I've been gone for like seven years, but they said, oh, "Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do it." And so I got the degree, um, was able to then to um, use that to teach college. The the job that opened up was Ramapo. It, ironically, um, they were looking for someone to do natural resources, mm-hmm. and I applied for the job. Um, my father had sent me the uh, a little cut out from the New York Times advertising it. And I ended up arranging for an f- interview by phone for Mount St. Helens. We, had, we were planting trees at Mount St. Helens, and um, it, had, it had blown up about a year before that, and yeah. we were beginning to reforest yeah. there. And the, th- this was before there were cell phones, so the only phone to do the interview was out on the highway by, the, uh, by Cougar Washington on the payphone. <laughs> and log trucks... Came roaring by <laughs> every, every ninety seconds. A log truck like roared that. by. Wow. And so at the time, this is a terrible situation for a job interview. But from from the point of view of the people in Jersey, they loved it. You know, there was out. I was out there, yeah. Mountains, yeah. planting trees, and sure. the log trucks were roaring right, by. Right. So I got the job, and we ended up coming coming east. Well, that's quite a story. It really so is. So that's the pathway that it took. Yeah. And then I led the field trips west, which were incredible, and there were twenty five of them. They were always carefully planned. You've been across country now 50 times? 40, 50 times. Yeah, 40, 50. Driven across, yeah. But wow. you led the field trips that went. That's great. Yeah, we, we, on occasion we drove, but usually just the staff drove. It took several faculty to go with me. And, and they would fly to either Denver or San Francisco or, or, or Portland or, or Seattle. It varied from trip to trip, Salt Lake City once. And then we would um, drive a loop, six-week-long grand loop with the vehicles Kind of like tree planting. It was modeled after yeah. tree planting, a traveling yeah. crew. We, we cooked five nights out of seven. We'd stay in a campground, all advanced, way in advance to get beautiful campgrounds, the best sites, five months ahead of time. You don't dare show up with 15 people and not know where you're going. You know, you got, yeah. you got, you got to know that six mm-hmm. months ahead of time, either hotels. And so we'd, I'd plant it. We'd plant it very you know, carefully. And we'd go to open pit copper mines, farms, clear cuts, Indian reservations, national parks, whatever, whatever was interesting. Yeah. Students loved it. 
We, we uh, you know, I told you that we went across country once in 2001, thanks to my wife's, uh, you know, experiences with her family going across country, and they planned them. I mean, with utter precision, her mom put together a three-inch binder for us that literally said, this is the best bathroom in this 300-mile pass <laughs> and everything, right. and it's got a great little restaurant next to it and this and that. And, but, I mean, planned it meticulously for uh, as we went along across the country. And when we got to Oregon and to, to the, fa- the far west, my father loved the mountains. My mother loved the oceans. And when I got there, I had like a very, you know, moving spiritual moment because in Oregon, the mountains meet the ocean. And it is absolutely inspiringly beautiful. And uh, I I can really identify with, with how you must have been taken by that. But I want to close in saying I, I want to thank God for that little alleyway between two buildings with the weeds New because City. that's where you started. That's the origin. Well, yes, it's, uh, we were very lucky about it. And yeah. I'm going back. This this is the 50th anniversary of the Hodads. This begin first week of September. Wow. So Anne and I are going to go back there and um, go to the coast too and, 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 and enjoy the, the beauty. I suspect that that if health allows it, that it's in some day in, in my older age, I may well be back there. I don't it, know. Howard, is that... Is that little alleyway still there? I doubt it. It was in Queens. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Queens, I mean, a, lot of, a lot of those ball fields, I used to catch butterflies in the ball fields, but they, one of them became Macy's. Yeah. Um, Queens yeah, Boulevard. They, you know, they, yeah. They Open space up. gets gobbled sure. up. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Let's take a trip right now. We'll go. Well, yeah. this has been See a treat. There. Thank you, Doc Howie. Well, thank, thank you very much. Yep, and, thanks. Uh, thanks, yeah. Doc Chuck, for uh, enabling all of this with this wonderful podcast. Uh, yeah. Folks, we will uh, we will see you again next week, and uh, until then, be observant, get involved, be informed, be engaged. The future is up to us. Thanks. Bye bye. one more thing i feel like steve jobs now or tim cook we last week enjoyed what i called environmental poetry written by doc harwitz and uh, he was good enough to share one more of his environmental poems and so we're going to share that with you right now i think it's a fitting way to uh, say farewell to this four-week series uh, where doc harwitz has been a part of our conversation, and also to say thank you to him for his very important and meaningful contribution, not just to this podcast, but to many, many years before and many, many students throughout the years. Here now, Doc Horowitz with another one of his wonderful environmental poems. This is a, a true story. Forestry Research for Darwin Lambert, visionary who loved the place and the tree. The bristlecone pine growing in a subalpine grove on the east cirque of Wheeler was sacrificed to carefully count its rings.
The mountain rises above desert, an island of trees, creeks, caves, and petroglyphs in Great Basin National Park. The tree was chosen in 1964, before the park was carved out of resistant Humboldt National Forest. Prometheus to admirers, it was identified as WNP-114. Sampling for research is the heart of multiple use. How could we manage without information? The irregular circumference made core readings uncertain, and increment borers got stuck in the compressed wood. The decision was made to finish the job. The contract logger, named Mike, refused to cut it and was told to leave gas in the saw. At the end, ring counts are imprecise. 4,844, more or less, 8 feet above base, translating to 4,900 to 5,200 years. About 100 years older than Methuselah, a bristlecone in the White Mountains. They couldn't know, but were determined to find out if it was the oldest tree ever measured until it was cut down. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cover, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. 
The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.